Hello and welcome to the Nomi Key Show. I'm Nomi Key Konst. We are 46 days away from the election and I am on my eighth state. I am here in Colorado Springs, Colorado. I'm going to take a hike, like a real hike in the wilderness uh, in the next hour and a half right after the show. So I'm looking forward to that. But before I go out into the fresh air and enjoy the nature, we have to talk serious business. We need to talk about fascism. Donald Trump is a fascist. No news there, right? Well, just this week, his administration proposed a classic bit of jackboot fascism. The Justice Department suggested that protesters should be persecuted for sedition. That means arrested and tried for seeking to overthrow the government. In other words, they want to redefine the First Amendment of the Constitution to say you can speak in protest just so long as you don't go too far. And the Trump administration, of course, decides what is too far. This is fascism, and we cannot be numb to these tendencies. But here's the other point. The fact that Trump and his apparatchiks are fascists does not mean that everyone who supports him is a fascist. This is important because the election must send a clear repudiation of Trump and his fascism. Stamp it out now before it's too late. Part of doing that is getting every anti-fascist, every single one of us, to vote in a coalition. But another part of this victory should be pulling away from Trump, those supporters who are not fascist themselves and just need to be reminded how dangerous Trump really is, or perhaps even educating them. Some people do support Trump because of his anti-democratic, militaristic, authoritarian, racist ways. On another day, we will call, we will discuss uh, the brilliant Eric Hoffer, the West Coast longshoreman who long ago explained why so many people are attracted to authoritarianism. Read him in the meantime, Eric Hoffer. But today, I want to talk to you about the people who voted for Trump because they wanted lower taxes or because they wanted health care and for some reason believed that Trump would deliver it or because they their job, they were, their job was being chewed up and spit out by globalization and loved Trump's promise to get t- tough on trade, which of course he didn't. There is nothing about those views that actually says fascism. And frankly, it was the Clinton campaign's fault in not organizing around health care and ending TPP. In fact, many of these people are pretty close to the things we as progressives believe. So if you can't reason with a fascist, I say you are absolutely right. But then I also say not all of Trump's backers are fascists, and we can and should talk to them because they are feeling the same pain that we are. Trump wants to demonize us. We are at the radical left, right, that he tries to terrify people with. We see the ads with Ilhan and Rashida and AOC and Nancy Pelosi all lumped together. Scary radical left feminists coming for you. Part of not letting him win is to refuse to use his tactics. Instead of demonizing his supporters as basket of deplorables and labeling them all fascists, let's find the ones who don't really believe in the worst of what he believes, but support him because they believe in something he believes, or at least something that he says he believes. We all know someone like that. I have a member of my extended family who wanted low taxes, so she voted for Trump. She lives her life tunes out the noise of politics, pays attention to voting in the last few weeks, like most voters do, actually, and she shrugs off Trump's personality, seemingly unaware of his very real fascist tendencies. So I talked her through them. And you know what? She learned. She was open. And she was appalled. And once I said Biden's financial plan is probably a little bit more friendly to her, even though I actually think she should pay more taxes, she turned because she came from an immigrant family that escaped fascism. And she wears a mask and believes in science. And she also believes in fair justice. She was just informed enough to vote, but not enough to be steeped in the news. And frankly, she was in a place of privilege, which I think is hard to escape, but that's a completely other story. We have our political arguments, of course, but once she understood his abusive power and very real racism, Her vote became a tool in this existential fight for the soul of our country. And I believe more like her can be won over. And here is another example straight from today's headlines. You can read about it yourself. Google the name Olivia Troye. Until last month, she worked in the White House. 
She helped run the coronavirus task force. She was appalled by what she saw. At one meeting, Donald Trump, she said, he said he was glad the virus came to America because it meant he would no longer have to shake hands with people that he felt were, quote, disgusting. That sounds like basket of deplorables, right? Yesterday, she said Donald Trump had created a constitutional crisis and that she would vote for Joe Biden. Now, Olivia Troy is a lifelong Republican, a Trump Republican. She is not one of us, not a centrist, not a leftist, and she never will be. She wasn't an MSNBC, never Trumper. But right now, she is an ally in advocating, in her words, for policies which recognize the dignity and worth of all people. I look forward, I really look forward to fighting her later when we get back to arguing about which policies are best for the people. But the next 46 days are a crisis. It is about stopping fascism. People are voting right now. We need to stop fascism with a coalition, a wide coalition. That includes us on the left and my Republican aunt who doesn't want to pay taxes. But first, we need to restore the basic idea that the purpose of our government is to recognize the dignity and worth of all people. This all came up for me last night pretty hard when I posted on Twitter a piece by a very interesting writer named Sarah Smart. She wrote it in The Guardian. She wrote a book called Heartland, a memoir of working hard and being broke in the richest country on earth. She grew up and still lives in Kansas. In another time, we might have called her a prairie populist. She lives way outside the blue filter bubble. Many of the people that she knows and loves support Trump to this day. But when she talks about them, she talks about real people, flesh and blood human beings, working people, facing hardships, feeling pain. We can learn from her to listen to them, to learn how we can communicate with them. And I'm speaking to you, Biden campaign. Some of you responded to me on Twitter last night asking how I could post this, reminding me you can't reason with fascists. To say it again, that is true. You cannot reason with fascists. No words will change Donald Trump and his most loyal gang. But the people in Sarah Smarsh's world are not fascists. They are people damaged by the brutality of our economy. They saw a savior in Trump and they were wrong about him. The people she's talking about are not the people riding around at these Trump rallies and getting on the boats and saying racist things out in the open. That doesn't mean that they don't have privilege. It doesn't mean that they don't recognize what is actually happening, but it also means that we have an opportunity to speak with them because I think a lot of them, once they realize he did not deliver on his promises, and once they realize the injustices that he's done, some of them are actually movable. And remember, we don't actually need all of them. We need like one out of 10. But that doesn't mean that they are evil or that we should ostracize them forever. There is a poem by Mario Cuomo, who ran for president, was the governor of New York, you know, Andrew Cuomo's more progressive father. Uh, Mario Cuomo used to always quote this poem by a fellow named Edwin Markham, who was born in Oregon City, Oregon, in the late 1920s and was the state's poet laureate. I want to read this entire poem. It's really short, so just bear with me. He drew a circle that shut me out. Heretic, rebel, a thing to flout. But love and I had the wit to win. We drew a circle and took him in. He called this poem outwitted. We can't out yell Trump or out muscle him, but we can outwit him by drawing a circle that includes mm, some of his supporters. Perhaps they're the working people. Perhaps they're disgusted by his lack of humanity. Wouldn't it be delicious when they abandon him? Markham wrote another poem, by the way, his most famous. It's called Man with a Hoe, H-O-E. And it is about the suffering of working people. But that, that's going to be our progressive literary circle for, circle for today. We will talk about that another time. Go look it up. I am live here from Colorado Springs, Colorado. We have a big show today, starting with a conversation with the brilliant organizer, Jane McAlevey. And later, we have our Femme Friday panel with Mayor of San Luis Obispo, Heidi Harmon. But first, here is what is at the top of my news feed. First story is, in the West, agriculture workers are at risk during wildfires as air quality worsens and smoke from the Western wildfires becomes visi visible, visible on the East Coast. Agriculture workers harvest crops by the light of their smartphone 
you know, the flashlights on their smartphones, donning N95 masks. An NPR piece tells the story of one woman who lost the ability to pay her electrical bills due to work, work hour shortages during the pandemic and faces unique struggle, struggles as an undocumented worker with no relief or rent of other, of other utilities, bills to pay, and a shortage of work opportunities during the pandemic. Those providing essential labor are forced into particularly dangerous working conditions as the fires in the West continue to burn. This is a major story. We have to pay attention to this. I know we're in the middle of a crisis. Second story that we have is great. I love this. New York cab drivers, let's show that video. Uh, They staged a protest. Uh, The New York Taxi Workers Alliance, which is a union of 21,000 cab drivers, held a successful shutdown of the Brooklyn Bridge, published publicizing their demands for debt forgiveness. Dorsey, can we show that video real quick? Oh, we don't have it. I apologize, guys. Uh, You can find that on Twitter right now. In order to fund transportation budgets, many cities began selling taxi medallions, permits awarded to drivers originally on the basis of seniority. Uh, Those values of taxi medallions in New York City used to surpass a million dollars, and many have gone down to dollars. But with the rise of Uber and Lyft, which do not use the medallion system and compete with taxi services for ridership, medallions quickly lost for value, their value falling to $160,000 in New York as of 2018. That's that's national or in total. And taxi drivers lost hundreds of thousands of dollars in equity. The financial devastation has hit cab drivers hard. Now they're organizing to put an end to that devastation and to make their demands known. This was a huge moment. Um, they've been organizing for many years, and so are, are are the workers of Lyft and Uber trying to unionize, trying to demand fair wages. Uh, this is near and dear to my heart. I live in Queens, where a lot of these taxi workers are based, the companies are based, where they are based. It's an immigrant uh, community, and it is a community where people really used... Uh, the taxi system to be able to purchase homes and start families and now all that investment is down the drain it's and it's actually caused a crisis in which taxi drivers are now uh, committing suicide at record rates third story of the day is joe biden joe biden has no michigan ground game a time a time magazine piece analyzed joe biden's campaign in in the 2000 swing state of michigan finding that his operations there are entirely digital. He has no field office, no hub, no hub, no place for people to pick up signs or to make phone calls or just to say hi from a social distance. And what? Those who remember Bernie Sanders' extensive ground game, uh, the support that the campaign gave to thousands of canvassers and office staffers have critiqued the strategy. How will the Biden campaign make its presence known in Michigan? But here's another question. What will happen if the Biden campaign makes its presence known in Michigan? Biden has supported trade deals that hurt working Michiganders, publicized the Rick Snyder endorsement after Snyder enabled a public health crisis in Flint, Michigan, and also refuses to back Medicare for all. That's Biden. Despite the fact that a majority of Michigan primary voters supported Medicare for all earlier this year, he needs to make a stronger case to win the state. Neoliberal policies and on-the-ground absence will not cut it, and we need that state to fight fascism. Fourth story of the day, uh, pandemic affects access to medical care. A poll between Harvard NPR and the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation reveals that an, a member of one in five households has had to forego or delay care for a serious medical issue. Make no mistake, this is a leftist issue. Austerity in the medical industry, perpetuated by establishment politicians like Andrew Cuomo from New York, has resulted in rollbacks and gutted funding that make hospitals unnecessarily dangerous environments during the pandemic. We're going to keep following this news uh, as it goes on because this, 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 the, the, the crises that come out of this pandemic linked to austerity that has been brought to us by conservatives, of course, and neoliberals. It's just creating more crises one after another. But that's for another day. Coming up next, we talk about organizing with Jane McAlevey. But first, make sure to smash that like button. Get in there. Get into that chat. I know you guys have a lot to say. I've been reading the comments. Uh, but make sure to smash that like button. And after the break, we have Jane McAlevey.
Welcome back to the Nomi Key Show from a hotel room in Colorado Springs, Colorado. We are on the road. Uh, we've been in, uh, where, where have we been this week? Filming. We've been in Missouri filming. Uh, we were in New Mexico yesterday, Santa Fe. It was very nice. And now we're in Colorado Springs. But I have been in eight states, and I think this is a blue one. I guess it's not a swing state anymore. So New Mexico was like a breath of fresh air. But after five, uh, uh, six Republican states. I am so excited because um, seeing the country in the middle of a pandemic, in the middle of an election, on the road where you're literally at risk if you get out of your car and meet people without masks on, just reminds me how important it is to organize. And we are in this moment right now. The opening was about how... Unfortunately, we have to speak to voters that are outside our immediate circle, including neoliberals, including never Trumpers, including some Trumpers, because that's what's going to take to fight fascism. And I could not have a better guest on. I think she's probably the most brilliant strategist and organizer on the planet. And soon she's about to spread that across the planet with a... Uh, well, I'll let her explain it. Uh, Jane McAlevey is currently a senior policy fellow at UC Berkeley's Labor Center. She is part of of the Institute for Labor and Employment Relations. She is the author of Raising Expectations and Raising Hell, My Decade Fighting for the Labor Movement and No Shortcuts, Organizing for Power in the New Gilded Age, and A Collective Bargain, all about unions and organizing. Uh, She's just a brilliant woman. Jane, thank you for joining us again for a return. It's so great to be here. Thank you. Last time, uh, it was the winter. It was the beginning of the pandemic, and uh, you were you were waiting for some uh, trees, I think, to be like knocked out in the back. In, in so, I was across the country in Vermont, and now I'm in these. You know, actually, today we're not in the center of the fires, but uh, I'm on the west coast, and it's only the second day that we've had fresh air. Like air not blasting crazy on the AQI indicator on the west coast, and. Uh, it is crazy. So when I did the same thing you did to get here, I drove, um, and it was sort of terrifying to like get out of the car. And it reminded me the whole way across the country how much work we have to do. Mm-hmm. Fires remind me how much work we have to do, and how much less patience I have for bad strategy. Oh, so well said. So here we are in this moment. Um, a lot of progressives. I think this is that 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 kind of come to Jesus moment where a lot of progressives who, as hard as we've been on Joe Biden. The primary is over, and and as we reluctantly vote for Biden um, with pause and strategize what happens post-election, maybe even during the election, um, simultaneously Trump is cracking down. I mean, he is just like, this is full-on fascism now. Um, shutting down TikTok. I mean, we used to complain that China shut down Google. Like, this is very similar here. Um uh, locking up, you know, rounding up people, saying that they're they're trying to overthrow the government when there's including journalists. This is this is straight up fascism. So, I just I just want to lead, and I, I want to hear about your plan because you have a great program you're launching. But I, I want to lead with: um, Is there any sort of advice you have for folks right now who, you know, based on your history of organizing, who want to hold their power against Joe Biden, but you know, giving a vote to Joe Biden may feel like they're losing some of their power? I think it's a really important question. Um, And my answer may not be entirely satisfying. And I think my answer has even changed in the last several weeks based on some of the decisions that you just made, which is that we need an anti-fascist popular front right now, basically, and that means it's all hands on deck. We just have to get rid of him. Um, And ideally, we have to elect, let's concede what will be sort of corporate Silicon Valley Democrats in the Senate. But the truth is, that's better than Stephen psychopath uh, Miller uh, and Donald sociopath Trump. So I think that for all the people who, like me, don't wake up in the morning jumping up and down all day about the Biden possibilities of the Biden presidency, we kind of have to put all that out of our head for the moment, do our damnedest you know, to try and push uh, an anemic campaign over the hump, um, because there is a lot um, at stake. And what I'm, yeah, so there's a lot at stake. And I think you kind of framed it out in in the opening of this, right? There are, we are in a period that is fascism, essentially at this point. Um, The attacks on journalism, the attacks on journalists, the attacks on ordinary people in the street, a president calling for vigilante justice against people, 
and on and on and on. It's it's unfathomable how bad things have already become. And so again, I'm I have no illusions about what a Biden presidency means, and I have no illusions about what it means, whether or not we get the Senate, but it's kind of key. We need to do both. We need to try to do both as hard as we can, despite our lack of enthusiasm, because there is no time to waste right now, sisters and brothers. And part of what, and everyone else, part of what I'm trying to stress by working on a strike school right now and a global strike school is that, yeah, and then there's gonna have to be hella hard organizing following. But the conditions for organizing under a Biden presidency and the conditions for organizing um, under a psychopath and a sociopath and their entire team, who we are seeing do take unprecedented actions, uh, we have to be real about that now. Two days ago, we had Vincent Bevins on who wrote the book, The Jakarta Method. And uh, for those of you who didn't see the episode or read the book, uh, it, it was it's a book about how in Indonesia, about 60 years ago, a little over 60 years ago, they rounded up a million people. Um, the militaristic fascist government rounded up a million people in the name of capitalism uh, for voicing opposition to capitalism. What they called communists, in many cases, they could have been a desk clerk at a union hall. In many cases, that's what it was. And while hopefully uh, it doesn't get to that point, I think you know, it was a very clarifying moment for me because so much of your work has been in union organizing and there is a clear, obvious agenda that the right wing is trying to rip apart unions and in many cases neoliberals, but there's more room to maneuver with neoliberals. I live in a a state ruled by, I say ruled, uh, by a neoliberal, Andrew Cuomo in in New York. He has to work with, with unions. He tries to wreck them, but he has to work with them. But it is better under those conditions than say, in Texas, where or Arizona, right to work, where you have to stage uh, strikes or or there has to be extraordinary movement and organizing in an already anemic labor movement. So, you're ta- let's talk about the strike school because I I heard about this. Uh, we had Sarah Nelson on, and she was like, "Oh no, I don't know if I was allowed to say it, but oh well." <laughs> Wait, she texted me and she was like, "Oh, I just talked about it," and I was like, "Great!" <laughs> and then I got so excited. <laughs> show was also great i was like well we're a better place to do it than on your show so um i think that was it's great uh i should say right now for the record their registration is closed um we're sort of overwhelmed by the registrations uh and it's going to be extraordinary i think um i'm happy to talk about it but i just want to go back to underscoring what you said which is you know this i'm sitting in california i'm sort of bi-coastal although we're in a pandemic so i'm trying not to behave bi-coastally i'm trying to sit for long periods of time and then drive in a Prius, you know, whatever, as best I can do across. Um, but it's really true here. And, and and one thing that always makes me a little bit nutty about some people on the left is not recognizing the difference because it's a huge difference. And in California, you know, we passed AB5, which is the law that Uber and Lyft are now spending a hundred, I think I said spending on this, $180 million. It's the most expensive uh, corporate backed campaign to overturn a law passed in a in a blue state where unions are still strong, like in New York. In California, AB5 is a law that was passed last year that said um, independent contractors uh, are not independent contractors, they're employees. And Uber and Lyft needs to make, call their drivers employees and pay into the payroll tax system and have them covered by all the laws that were passed in this country by uh, you know, by stronger labor movements, frankly. Um, and, and the response to that, so first of all, it's like we passed it. And what's interesting is, uh, you know, a Democratic legislature uh, in California, a Democratic governor, again, not, not who we would probably pick as our first candidates, but the difference between having a union movement that could actually lead to changing that law and saying these are not independent contractors. Now we're watching them spend $180 million on the ballot. And by the way, I love when they call us big labor because our side has like six million in the fight and they have 180 million in the ballot initiative right now. So like, who's big? Whoa. 180 million, Whoa. million right now. Uber and Lyft are spending. For everyone who uses them, get off their apps. Oh using those two car companies, using those Silicon Valley elite anti-worker union busting companies. Uh, I always say to friends, let me see your phone, and I threaten to step on it if they don't remove those two apps, because I'm sorry there's no excuse for it. 
Like we got to draw the line on Uber and Lyft um, along with others. But anyway, that's the difference. I mean, in this state, we actually we're passing laws that are pro-worker. The governor signed more laws today covering way more people under the pandemic. Every day we're passing laws that make California not a people's paradise, but far better than being in Arizona or Oklahoma or fill in the blank. So we just need to get real about it. We need to change the conditions under which we can organize so that we can organize more. That's the job right now. And I think, you know, it's interesting. I've never really thought about this way, but there is, uh, the last week, we've been talking a lot about this blue bubble that we live in and these filter bubbles that even activists, listen, I live in the most socialist neighborhood in the country in Astoria. If there's anybody who's in a bubble, it's me. It's also the most diverse place on the planet, the most diverse borough in the most diverse place on the planet. So- I do, we do. (laughs) Um, So it's, it's, uh, and it's also made up of working people. and, And I think like, we sometimes get in these these bubbles in which we don't really understand the other side of the country the same way that they say that about us. And ultimately, changing the conditions, I think that's the language. You just said it so well. The conditions in New York are different than the conditions in Oklahoma, just like the conditions in Oklahoma are very different than the conditions in New York. So we are running two parallel campaigns and then somewhere in the middle, you have to talk to these voters. And I think the big question is like, who are those voters? And we're the ones who have to talk to them. But if we're the ones who have to talk to them, we have to know that they exist and recognize they're the ones we have to talk to. And so I think yeah. there's this big fight over who are those people. Yeah. I mean, I've long believed that we could pull about 10% directly from Trump's face. I think there's a hardcore of about 25 or 30, which frankly is a terrifying number. Terrifying. There's a hardcore of 25 or 30% that we probably can't move and we shouldn't even waste a second on them. Um, hopefully some day they're all like, cleaning toilets and nursing homes or something seriously to make up for all the damage they've done. But there's a 10% of that base that from my experience as a trade union organizer, we could be pulling if we were attempting to. And when people say, well, but we have the demographic numbers, we can focus on some, you know, let's just focus on turning our folks out. That's ignorant of the states that matter. It's ignorant of swing states. And it's ignorant, really ignorant of the voter suppression that's going on. And, a lot, you know, in the end of a collective bargain, I predict the, I predict that there's going to be massive voter suppression in this election cycle, right? It came out in early January. I predict that people need to be ready for unprecedented voter suppression. I outlined a lot of what it looked like, what the hard forms of voter suppression are and what the soft forms are. I talk about two different kinds. Soft forms are like futility, all the subtle ads on Facebook trying to, you know, that the Trump campaign people are running about Biden, where they quote all of his anti-Black legislation from 30 years ago or 20 years ago. That's like the soft voter suppression. We call that driving futility in a trade union campaign, where they're trying to make people think nothing's going to change, so I'm just going to set this one out, right? That's soft voter suppression. Then there's overt voter suppression, like, I don't know, pulling sortation machines out of the post office and dragging them into the rain and dismembering them so that the voting system doesn't work for mail ballots. I mean, I have to say, I'm I've experienced some pretty serious hardcore union busters in this country. Um, And even I couldn't predict yanking sortation machines out into the rain, which is like what some of the stories are, pulling employees being told to pull them out and dismember them so they can't even work again. Like that level of voter suppression, that's the continuum that we're on. So that's the reason why thinking about where can we pick up one, five, six, seven, and 10% matters. And as a trade union organizer, and part of why we're running this next round of a, a big strike school, um, a big, you know, we, the whole strike school begins on effective communication with ordinary people, with being able to listen to who they are. We know, I'm sorry to say, that your show is not where most Americans get their news. And <laughs> I hope it is. I mean, I could vote. Where would people get their news if you're right here? But we know that it's Fox News. That's just a fact. There's, I mean, it's a, it's a constant. I know we believe in facts, so it's an actual fact that most ordinary people get their news from Fox News. So if you think about the magnitude of where they're getting ideas in their head, and if leftists approach them by either writing them off or dismissing them or barking at them, barking is something a lot of people do, as opposed to like huh, that's interesting that that worker just told me that they are uncomfortable with Black Lives Matter. Um, Instead of me saying, well, that's a really messed up position that came out of your mouth just now, I'm going to start 
to listen to that worker. And as an organizer, I'm going to ask them a lot of questions about uh, that are going to help me understand how she or he, usually she in my case, how she arrived at that position, or if she says something that's pro-Trump. I mean, I had a leader in 2016, I mean, a serious leader, a leader meaning this person leads the people in her unit. That's what we mean by leader in the trade union movement. We don't mean they're with us. We mean they lead people. And so if we can't persuade them to change their opinion, they're going to lead the no vote, by the way. So if you do an analogy about that to regular sort of civic elections or what we think of as civic or so elections, um, and I hear a worker saying to me, um, I'm voting for Trump in a campaign, I, I, I'm not going to just say, you're a blasted idiot. You know what I mean? I'm going to say, I'm going to keep a poker face. We do a lot of poker face, like we practice poker face and union organizing and negotiating. Like there's a lot of like, wow, I'm just going to take a breath. And then I'm going to say that's super interesting. So what I want to go back to is the three things that you just told me that you want to change at work. Because what I heard is you're doing too much overtime. Um, you've got uh, mandatory on-call shifts that are making it so you can't enjoy your family. And I'm going to go back to the issue she's on. And I'm going to probably spend an hour instead of 30 minutes in that conversation to help walk her through why those things are happening in her life. And I'm going to casually get back to where she talked about Trump. Right. And I'm not going to do that. And I'm not going to be successful if I like sass off and have an opinion that she doesn't know what she's talking about. That's not helpful. Right. I need to walk her through, set up a series of questions and help her learn to have a much more effective conversation with someone whose politics are shaped by Trump, I mean, by Trump, yes, by Trump news. I almost said Trump news, by Fox news, same thing. Um, same thing, literally. That's what we're starting off the school on. Like we spend the first few sessions on how do you actually listen and engage in successful conversations with people who don't yet agree with you. That's key. And it, it really requires a level of empathy. And I think, you know, alternatively, we have a campaign right now um, that the Biden campaign, I think there are a lot of technocrats, not all of them, but there's a lot of technocrats there. And it's like they do see things through a data space. And data does not give you these human moments where you hear something and say, oh, I can connect with you on that. And then, like, use that to to, to basically manipulate your way in to having a larger conversation, meeting people where you are. That's the old line, right? How do you grow the circle, um, Jean? I let's. I know it's it's maxed out, but can you tell us a little bit about this strike school? Yeah, super excited about it. I mean, registration closed on the fifteenth, and we're definitely getting people saying, "Can we still get in?" And the truth is, it's already overwhelming. So um, there's four thousand people. It's got you know we're gonna be teaching a Zoom class with four thousand people. Uh, live. Uh, it's synchronous, not asynchronous, because we're doing it twice a day. So we'll teach the same class twice a day for two to accommodate two major different time zones in the world. And we have sort of like the Americas, Australia, Asia, sort of one direction focused class time. And then we're doing it in a totally different time zone. That's like Africa and Europe facing time zone. Um, and I, I don't want to name all the unions from around the world that are in it, but we made, so I'm doing this with the Rosa Luxemburg Stiftung out of Germany. Um, and it's been a phenomenal experience. It started as a pilot last fall. And what's so amazing about it is the pilot, which wasn't called Strike School, we just called the Organizing for Power, four sessions. I was a total skeptic. I was the most skeptical. I was like, this is a stupid idea. I do face-to-face -face training. People learn best in live campaigns. You apprentice them in a campaign. Second best option is we're in a face-to-face -face organizing training with lots of role play. What's this online stuff? This is pre-COVID, pre-anyone hearing of COVID. So they dragged me from Germany into this online teaching class. And for that one, a couple of thousand showed up. And I thought, what uh, is this? And then scrambled to figure out how to get people. We couldn't do it in the first one. We gave them role plays to practice on their own, but we couldn't figure out how to actually do it ourselves because of the limitations of Zoom or Zoom webinars. Okay, fast forward. When I am talking to you and I'm in a different state on the East Coast, um, we I think we were just wrapping the COVID version of it. In four days, we threw out, let's do an organizing online class to show folks you can still organize under COVID and thousands signed up for that. This time we've had more time to plan and think about it. The experiment we ran during the COVID class was recruiting a bunch of organizers to set up like Zoom Pro accounts so that we could break 2,000 people into 100 different uh, links to then get them into small groups to practice what? One of the most important things you and I just talked about, how to have an effective, hard, 
conversation with someone who does not yet agree with you. Like we, so, so we did one round of that. And now in strike school, we have more than a hundred uh, people who have agreed to sign up. Facilitation training began last night. We have like 130 people who are gonna do, play the facilitator role to do breakouts. Um, and people from across the world, from South Africa, you know, to whatever, uh, United States to fill in the blank. Uh, you know, when I leave this call, I'm gonna go talk to the head of the Peruvian Healthcare Workers Union about their participation. So, and there was just a massive strike improved. It, it probably wasn't the headline news in the United States, by the way, right? Hospital strike under COVID conditions demand PPE. So there, there are strikes breaking out um, and we need a lot more of them. Uh, and I'm incredibly excited. This class is gonna be simultaneously interpreted into seven languages and all the materials for the whole curriculum. I had to do much earlier than my usual last minute self become so deadline driven because the materials are being translated into seven languages. So this is a serious attempt at rebuilding worldwide worker power. Um, and as I always say, the same organization that gets you ready for a strike gets you ready for an election. It's the same level of organization to do an election and win it as it is to pull off a big strike. Jane, this is amazing. I, I I don't know if we're able to watch it in any way, but I would love to have you back on to tell us uh, how it went. And, you know, if, if, if people are planning, I mean, obviously they don't want to announce everything, but if there are things that you can announce in terms of strikes, I mean, we're seeing it just in, I live in New York, and obviously uh, teachers are, are really standing up, and they should be, because it's, uh, the New York City school system is severely underfunded, and now you're putting everybody at risk, but in the yeah, city that's spread all over the country. 45 years of disinvestment, right? And then mm -hmm. people wonder, why can't, why can't we open the schools? Because there's no ventilation, the windows are broken, there's no HVAC system, there's not even running water in half the public schools. And then people are like, why can't we open? Right. Well, pay your damn taxes, send the rich people and the corporations, pay your damn taxes, reinvest in K-12 education, and then we might actually be able to open up the schools, right? Right. They want their babysitters, that's what they want. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. it's, I, some of these comments I'm seeing, it's, it's mind-blowing from people who should be a little bit more reasonable. Jane, super interesting. You have to go talk to Peruvian organizers uh, and save the world. But thank you for sharing everything. And I can't wait to hear all about the strike school and how it went uh, when you come back next time. Always a pleasure to see you. Keep Thanks, going. Jane. Thank Thanks. you, you too. Onward. Uh, next up, we have our Femme Friday panel with the one and only Katie Halper, the host of the Katie Halper Show and Useful Idiots, and Mayor Heidi Harmon out from San Luis Obispo. Uh, she'll be talking about how she has has been organizing in her community. She was, I believe, the first person elected after the Bernie primary in 2016. Stick around. We'll be right. We'll be back right after the break. Welcome back to the Nomi Key Show, live from Colorado Springs, Colorado, on the road. Uh, I am so excited. We have our weekly series that we started uh, last week called Femme Fridays, where we talk about feminism and class and just different aspects of it. We're playing around here, so, you know, this might be a little bit of a... Of a, of a different type of conversation. But I'm excited to have uh, Katie Halper, who is the host of The Katie Halper Show and the co-host of Useful Idiots. Is that everything, I think? I think She's just always doing stuff. She's always writing. She's hosting a million things. Uh, and then we have the mayor of San Luis Obispo, Heidi Harmon, with the most beautiful backdrop and always before everyone had a rose on Twitter, she was wearing these roses just stunning roses um, out on before you were even running for office, but especially on the campaign trail. So it's great to see you here. Uh, so, ladies, before we get to some um, real talk about women and labor and organizing and class, I just saw this clip and I would love to hear your reaction because this is a woman talking about um, not necessarily like just just talking about what is going to appeal to Biden's voters. And I think we're at that weird moment now where we are trying to um, figure out how to grow his coalition so we can defeat fascism. Dorsey, can we play that clip? It's on MSNBC.
Michael, Joe Biden said yesterday that his campaign is Scranton versus Park Avenue. Why is he going with this divide and conquer approach? That's Trump's thing. What about a message for all Americans? I don't live on Park Avenue, but I live pretty close to it. And you know how I got there? Working my butt off. He doesn't want my vote. Okay, okay. So what really stuck out for me here, other than the fact that she's so close to Park Avenue and she just worked really hard on TV and like married a very rich man to get there. Um, He's very, very rich, just to put that out there. I was like, that's how she got there is divide and conquer politics. I, you know, we talk about this on the left, uh, identity politics, but so when when it comes to feminism, I feel like that kind of gets left out. Um, I, I just want to launch with like how Heidi, you're a lawmaker now. You have to talk to all types of people. You're a woman who got to, how to get elected. You're radically progressive as we love. Um, how are you able to bridge that divide so that people understand when 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 you talk about issues of class and progressive economics, it helps women? Hmm. First of all, thank you for so much for having me. And thanks for uh, such a good and tough of the moment kind of question. You know, my politics and my um, activist sort of journey, if you will, has really led me to a place of feeling like all of these issues and all of us ultimately are interconnected. And so I personally am really trying to work on not conquering and dividing um, and not dividing at all, but seeing what we can do, um, trying to understand people deeply and being genuinely, I would say, intellectually curious about people and where they're coming from. Um, you know, and that there's a tension around that just, you know, I'm, so I'm up for election, for example, right now. And so I've had some conversations this week with folks that, um, are frustrated with me for the stance I've taken in support of Black Lives Matter here in my local community. And so these conversations are really tricky, right? Because you want to have integrity and have your values and make those values clear and be really transparent about them and have an open dialogue with people that across difference um, to see if you can create some understanding, not just to get reelected, but to actually truly make this community and by extension, this world a, a truly better place as naive as that sounds. That's always my goal. You know, so I think it's tricky. Uh, several of the people I spoke to this week, I asked them, who are you voting for for president? Um, you know, it's like a big secret now. Right. Um, and the three, um, they were all males. They were all affluent males and they're all, they were all, they all shared their voting for Trump. And, um, so these were some of the first conversations I've actually had with folks that have expressed that, um, support of Trump. And so those were interesting conversations. And so I think it's definitely tricky. And so in terms of circling back to how it impacts women, um, You know, (laughs) it's so tough being in this position for me and being, as you noted, a progressive female person who also presents in a way that I think is also different than most people are anticipating. Um, And so I I feel like if I can learn how to um, come to the table and have those conversations with folks that think that we are on opposite sides, I think we can get some understanding and by way of that understanding, get some policies done that impact everyone um, in a better way, including the women in my community. Katie, you write about this a lot. Um, we've had a lot of conversations offline about this. Uh, it's been it's been so difficult to translate this idea of class and sex uh, connected to neoliberals. What do you think is standing in the way? I think what's standing in the way are uh, hosts like that, by the way, um, who make these ridiculous claims. And by the way, just a little PSA uh, or pitch for the Biden campaign: hire that woman and then do exactly the opposite of what she's saying because she is so out of touch and so entitled. Sorry, I'm gonna, sorry, uh, Mayor, I'm gonna do the dividing and conquering so you don't have to and the rest of us don't have to. Um, I uh, I mean, the dividing and conquering that should be done, of course, is is kind of the the stuff that that Biden in that, in that little slogan is trying to do, which I would encourage people to do more of, which is basically pointing out the haves versus have nots, the 1% versus the 99%. Um, I'm sorry if um, she, uh, the, that host, MSNBC host, and Soledad O'Brien are triggered by um, by Biden mentioning uh, Park Avenue versus Scranton. I mean, my problem with that is I feel like it's lip service and not policy. So what I would like to see in terms of women's issues, um, and of course, as you referred to, Nomi, a lot of times people pretend that these issues are um, mutually exclusive as opposed to very interconnected. So when you have an issue like minimum wage, or Medicare for all, those are issues that impact women, 
people of color, women of color disproportionately. You know, there's this myth that if you do something that's good on economic justice, you're sacrificing racial justice and gender equality. And it couldn't be farther from the truth. If you care about working women, if you care about the working class, that includes black people, people of color, women, women of color. Um, and we know that those people earn the least and need economic justice more and as much as anyone else. And this, there's all this overlap in common shared interests and they're they're always being presented as as niche but they're not at all and those are the things that we need to be talking about and organizing people around that's what biden should be organizing people around and um i think it's a it's great when people like that look like are, are upset you know what is what is the msnbc there's a liberal basically fox but they don't they like gay people they're fox who likes gay people and I'm not against, like, I mean, I, that's good. It's like Fox business, basically. It's Fox, well, it's Fox socially, not even socially liberal, but it's like they're Fox without the, without these um, racial uh, gender-based bigotry, in, yeah. at least in, in a very direct way. I mean, of course, I would th- think that if you don't support Medicare for all um, or raising the minimum wage, stuff like that, you're actually you are selling people out, selling people of color out, women they're, out, LGBTQ people out, but they're, they're not. They're selling systemic injustice right, yeah. to people who are not educated in the interconnectedness, as you said so well, yeah. so that they're, they have blinders up. And right. and they use things like, you know, what, I, I don't even really understand what she was saying. I thought it was, I thought that was egregious. I thought that sounded like something that Trish, uh, Trish Regan, who got fired from Fox Business, Sounds like something she would say. That's how ridiculous it was. But I mean, looping it back, I, I we're in this moment right now, a pandemic where nurses, educators, flight attendants, all majority female industries yeah. are on the front lines. And I'm like, okay, Biden, you, you know, you need to win over women, as we saw last time. Hillary did not win over the women that she wanted to win over, and it was all about Trump's. Uh, egregious actions, whether it was the Access Hollywood tape and many, 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 many other instances. And if if Biden doesn't want to lean into that because he's got his own issues, as you know too well, Katie, um, not because you experienced it, because you've covered it, then why not talk about these these issues that I actually do think he stands for supporting nurses? Maybe not Medicare for all yet until he slips up and is forced to. Uh, you know, he still stands with teachers unions. He still stands with flight attendants workers. So why not lean into those things to win over women? Heidi, you're a lawmaker. I mean, or why not just have values and stand by them? I mean, that's always my thing. I mean, it's not that, I mean, it's hard to do, I guess. It's apparently it's hard to do since it seems like so few people do it. Um, But I think that that's one of the opportunities that I have and that I am committed to. And I can tell you what, it is really tough. I get it why people don't do it. It's brutal. And though, you know, you like Nina Turner and so many people have said, you know, I I want electeds that care more about the next generation than they do about their next election. And that's how I try and lead. That's how I run. That's how I lead. And if I lose in the technical sense, I still win because I still have my own integrity and I'm, I, and I continue to be a consistent person that I think my community can believe in. Um, and to me, it's, it's, it's kind of that simple. I think this is why, you know, Nomiki, I've shared so many times with you, it's very common in your conversations, how frustrating the Democratic Party is, which I am still in. Um, you know, what, what if we actually were the party that we purported to be? How about that? You know, like, I, I, I feel so betrayed by the Democratic Party, you know, and again, it's like a, like a dysfunctional family. I'm still in it, but I'm, you know, like a little bit like a teenager who constantly marching around mad at my parents for turning out to not be who I thought they were when I was growing up, right? Um, and, and, you know, that, that's what I try and do, you know, and um, it's imperfect and it's incredibly difficult, um, but it's, to me, the right thing to do. So, to me, that's that's the missing piece all the time. And the idea that the Republicans or whoever is the enemy to me is the is the mistake. Apathy is the enemy at all times, I feel. And so when 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 we get mired in a valueless conversation that's not leaning into what's true and what's real and not naming what needs to be named, we lose. Apathy um, is our enemy, not Trump, not the Republicans. Katie, um, what's your response to that? No, I mean, in some ways, I agree that obviously we can't just run. Uh, we, Jesus, I, I guess I'm in that abusive relationship too. Uh, I agree <laughs> that the Democrats can't just run as um, anti-Trump. I mean, they have to run on something. 
Uh, and I, it's so funny. I wonder, I, I wonder if Biden's like, guys, to his rich donors, like, guys, don't you get it? This is just a slogan. I'm not actually going to sell you out, obviously. What do you no, think? No, he did say that. He was caught his, his, well, his advisors. Well, that time yeah. when he said nothing is going to fundamentally Nothing's change. Nothing's going to fundamentally change. Yeah, As right, every right. Democrat I know, nominee right. has yeah. had those moments. Right. So well, I don't know why Stephanie rules that her name, Stephanie rule. Why can't she, she just, she should just chill out. I mean, they're just so, I guess, used to being, um, it's, it was actually really funny that those that people got upset by it. I was again, it's like great PR for me for Biden. Makes me really like Biden. Um, but no, of course, just put, there's so many things that unite people, and that should be the focus. But but as as uh, Mayor Harmon was referring to, it, it's kind of hard because you'd actually have to live by your values, right? So they have to adopt those policies, um, not just pander. And uh, yeah. I mean, but that's okay. So, so this is interesting. It's one thing to live by your values, and and then there's another thing to actually get down on the ground and get connected. And on yesterday's show, I received some flack for saying, you know, let Biden be Biden, unleash him, because like the one thing he has going is he kind of, you know, he does relate to people in a sometimes yeah. weird and creepy way, because he's before he's of he came of age before that like consultant plug and play, you know, technocrat uh, Pete Buttigieg robot. Thing, fo- where they're fo- like focus group focus group exactly yeah. biden yeah he goes off script everyone by the way goes off script right. everybody mis- makes mistakes you just have to factor that in and he's gonna do it but the plus side is he can actually talk to those workers in a way that they they do here maybe not us but they do here and maybe that means he talks to frontline workers who are facing extraordinary pain right now and suffering and literally dying because of this president and so like why can't they just get in on the ground and talk, I mean, even if he doesn't go full Medicare for all, whatever his latest version is, because he's changed it 16 times, I have no idea. Why can't he just get get in there? Like, so that, the st- I mean, Stephanie Rule is the epitome of the media elite. Yeah. And so I don't, I don't think she did anything there. I don't think she lost him a vote. I don't think she gained him a vote. I think she was just, it was just about her in that moment. But but I do think there is something to be said about, yeah, divide and conquer. Who cares about the 1% versus the 99%? Where he needs to go is on the ground to actually yeah. connect with those people so it's not conquering folks. I mean, I, I don't know if you want to um, go ahead, respond go ahead. to that first. But I mean, I honestly think that this is, I really think that he's, there's too much potential for slipping up. I think it's not the gaps as much as it is, honestly, just looking like he's not all there. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I really wish that weren't the case. And if he is, I mean, I think you're right. I think he has a, I mean, some people find it, um, maybe not that I I do think he has a way with people, as you said, and I think sometimes people respond to it, but I do think it's probably a risk, but he certainly could make the kind of bold statements that, you know, instead of pursuing the Stephanie rules, um, of the world, he could be pursuing the, like you were saying, the frontline workers, the people who stayed home, right. Those two groups, the people who went from, um, Obama to Trump and can go back to, to the Dems and the unmotivated base and the unmotivated base um, wants to hear stuff about how how their lives will really be affected not about Russia not um, about uh, you know n- not catering to the Park Avenue elites that's not how you're going to get them and these are the people we need to that need to be reached not the suburban white affluent suburbanites um, and the moderate Republicans and I can't believe we have to say this because they tried it last time and it didn't went, work yeah, I mean, to me, Man. it's time to. I, are you allowed to say crap on your show? Yes, <laughs> just, just not, like the F, not the F. <laughs> so you know, just a couple nights ago, um, and I've been super emotional lately, so I might get choked up here. But my kid lives in Portland. They've been at a lot of the protests, and then now they're inundated with smoke and wildfires, etc. And we were on the phone, and they were in tears, really upset, and um, it was the first time that, as a mother, I felt like I could not tell my kid that it's going to be okay. I did not feel like it was in my integrity to tell my own kid, hey, I, I can tell you it's going to be okay. And to me, that's, what, that's, what's, that's how much is at stake here. You know, people are dying in the streets. Um, our, my whole state and all the whole West feels like it's engulfed in flames. And this is just the beginning of what we know will be the worst wildfire season in history. You know, all the things that we have been predicting to happen are happening. We're in the middle of them or now. And, and there's just too much at stake not to be real, in my opinion. I, to me, it's the gift of this moment. It's what empowers me and my leadership too. Like whenever you get that little feeling like, oh, should I, should I soften this? Or, you know, it's like, no, actually my kids' lives are at stake. 
And so, it, so are all of our lives and not to be too, you know, his, histrionic about it, but it's real. So I, I, to me, it's a gift. And I just wish that the Democratic Party would embrace that gift and run it down the field. You know, like the wheels are coming off. Great. Okay. I mean, not great, but also that's the moment. Let's meet the moment and get real and, and live those values that we pretend and purport to have. It's constantly frustrating. And you're right. You know, this feels like 2016 all over again on a, in a lot of ways. And I think that, you know, if folks would just be bold and be real, um, that we could win. There are races to, to lose, and we do. Um, can you guys stick around for a few more minutes? Are you good? Sure. Perfect. So we're, we're going we're gonna to take this a little long, and then we'll share it with our patrons as well. Um, I want to shift gears just a little bit because – this is a very real moment, as you just suggested, uh, Mayor Harmon. And it's not just Biden who's not really rising to that moment and, and digging deep and feeling that pain. Um, you know, of course, they're focusing on their videos with Obama and Harris talking about Biden's ice cream and his glasses instead of what every single American pretty much is talking about, which is where is this country going? We all are afraid, even if they're not afraid for the right reasons. Um, but there's also Congress, which, speaking of ice cream, Nancy Pelosi. Uh, so Nancy Pelosi, of course, uh, a few months ago, while everybody's panicking about whether or not they can pay their rent, and that's still a panic, and now people are mounting an extraordinary amount of debt, possibly losing their apartments, their homes. Homeless crisis is going to rise. We don't have those societal measures in place. This is safety net. Nancy Pelosi has, and Congress, are just out to lunch, and she is being challenged right now by Shahid Buttar. And um, I want to kind of flip the script a little bit on, on, on conversations about women because there is this alternative issue, which is there are people being Me Too'd in this movement as a weapon. And I think I'm, I'm probably going to go as bold to say after reading and listening to Shahid Buttar, um, it seems, at least from my perspective, and I know, Katie, you've, you've interviewed him about this, that there there was no actual evidence there. Yeah. Um, and like you and I think it's really important for us also in the movement to read through these things and say, okay, this sounds really bad. Okay, but where is the evidence? And that's really important as journalists, just think about it from a perspective of would this hold up in a court of law? Is this something that's admissible? Right. And so Katie, I know you've touched on this. Can you talk about it a little bit? Yeah. Because this is the segment we talk about these things. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, the 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 logic of believe women and listen to women is that it doesn't have to hold up in a court of law, right? That's why it exists in many ways. It exists to compensate for the fact that the criminal justice system and our legal system is so ill-equipped to deal with these things. But I do think that doesn't mean that you, what believe women means is you believe women by default, and then you look and see what there is. And I do think that in the case of Shahid, it was a really unfortunate um a uh, combination of someone who had said things about Shahid, and we talked about this on Useful Idiots, the Rolling Stone show that I have with Matt Taibbi, and also um, I interviewed um, people involved in the story, and I'll be releasing that um, within this week on my uh, podcast and video show, the Katie Alper Show. But um, the, the, the allegations were made by someone who also alleged that Shahid was involved in covering up the true causes of, of a mutual friend's death, um, she said that Shahid had done things that apparently are things that she had actually done to someone else. So, um, uh, I mean, I don't know how into the weeds you want to get, but basically she lived with a stand-up comedian, a woman who said that she herself told the accused, uh, Shahid's accuser uh, that she was celibate because of a sexual, um, because of trauma. Um, and then that's what this woman, the accuser, based her interactions on Shahid with. And this other one was like, no, that she reappropriated my story. That was my story. And then there was, I would say, you know, unhappy staff. And I think that they, you know, there was a, when they left, they used that. I mean, I'm not denying that they, they may have experienced him as an unpleasant, mean boss. Um, but I think that my big issue with it is that the way the media reported on it and the way DSA reacted to it was they just took it um, on face value right. that a, a toxic workplace environment, I mean, they didn't ask for, and this is going to bite everyone in the ass yes. because all these people who are like, yeah, let's rescind this endorsement, get rid of him. Boo, misogyny, boo, toxic workplaces, which are bad. Like there's no criteria for any of this. And right. then you have people being like, well, he's a van. It was a vanity campaign. What, why, first of all, what's your definition for that? Second of all, why does that matter? If anything, that makes me m way more suspicious because that's a political critique, 
not a critique about behavior. Um, and you know what that's saying, and I can't believe that I hear DSA comrades saying this is like if you don't have money and the polling isn't already in your favor, you might as well not run. I mean, what is that saying? That's like an Emily's List type of elitist um, ideal. So people, I mean, I'm sorry, people really need to. And I'm a me. I believe in me too, and I've written about me too, and I uh, champion me too people. And um, and but and we saw this with Alex Morton also. More Alex yes. Morris also where. This that was different. Morse really was an oppo campaign. This was something oh, that was a combination. See, I'm gonna go a little bit further. We had Jane McAlevey on earlier and okay. and and she um you know she's covered she's she's prepared unions for union busting and there are union busting tactics. And what this revealed to me, and, and I and I'm bringing back to a point about me too, because it's really I think very important that we preserve the safe the ability for a woman to come forward and share their story and for it to be taken seriously based on a set of, of, of circumstances and how you report on it, how you cover it, how a movement responds to it, how people hear about it and learn about it. And, and, and I think with the situation with Shahid, when I read it, which was very similar to Alex Morris, which is very similar to Asan uh, Lakey, which was very similar yes. to many other situations, I've personally experienced others, right. um, in which... He didn't have an allegation. It was there people was, being yeah. quoted saying, I feel this way. And then you say, as a journalist, you'd say, what happened? Right. And then you right. report on it. But right. there was no what happened. It was yeah. a few people saying, I felt this way. Another person saying something that a million people shut down. And suddenly, this happens in the final moments before a primary or before an election, excuse yeah. me. And it, it basically, tank, you know, their, their attempt to tank his campaign, which is, of course, a weapon. So when you see women weaponizing Me Too, I'm assuming it's yeah. the Pelosi campaign, um, doesn't that hurt the whole Me Too movement? And, and Mayor, I know you're not, you know, you're not steeped in this, this, this conversation, this story, but you have, you have run on this. You have talked about Me Too extensively. So from your perspective as somebody who is in politics, who is in, in leadership, how do we, and it's a tough question to, to answer, I'm sure, how do we make sure that we keep Me Too alive, but also have very real conversations about maybe sometimes like the centrists and the right wing are using it to break us apart, or frankly, even our leftist opponents are doing it? This is such a complex question to navigate and having seen you know, folks that I know that um, were very committed to the Me Too movement, but then silent when the conversation or the questions were coming up around Biden and all of that too, and that discomfort and watching them navigate that and having a lot of feelings about that, but then also not knowing for sure what the deal is, you know? And so, um, but wanting to, you know, as you noted, like believe women as the impulse, right? That should be, I think the first impulse, um, but then getting some more clarity and, and facts to back up that impulse. Um, you know, I don't know exactly what the answer is um, in, in terms of navigating all of that, because a lot of folks, you know, aren't going to have access to these people personally to have those deep questions and conversations where you could look someone in the eye and say, hey, tell me more about what happened in this scenario. Um, so I think that is incredibly difficult to navigate. But I would hope, you know, that um, women would realize the gravity of the of the claims and and um, understand that those should supersede politics and not be weaponized and you know any of these things these are all you know it, it, it obviously diminishes it greatly when when women who have been sexually assaulted come forward which is incredibly difficult to do because they know they're going to get destroyed and they know they're going to be accused of lying themselves um, and so it adds that layer of complexity um, to it and when you have a scenario like this which I'm not familiar with the details of this particular situation but it sounds like there's at least some deep questions about about the validity of the claims, that 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 question of the validity um, gets all over everybody else's valid claims, right? Mm. Um, and that is incredibly detrimental. Um, so, you know, I, I assume people will still engage with this this kind of false claims, you know, if they feel like it's going to benefit them politically. But I would still absolutely err on the side of believing women, generally speaking. That's great. Um, before we wrap up, uh, on that note, Katie, you, you have covered the Tara Reid story yeah. as, as uh, Mayor Harmon. You were the one who broke, really broke that story open. 
uh, and she um, continues to be smeared and yeah. put under any updates on what happened with Target, no. who of course made the allegations against uh, Joe Biden. Yeah, I mean, I just think that there are people who have said that she um, cheapened or, or trivialized uh, Me Too, and the truth is it's all the people who've said that about her who have done that, and we'll see with time how true that is, and it's definitely true, and it's undeniable. And, you know, people cl- pearl clutching and pretending to care about journalism and Me Too ethics who couldn't have cared less about the way it was done with Christine Blasey Ford, who I also believe, but they they were fine with the with the the amount of time spent looking into that allegation before airing it. Um, people who you know, no one. I don't even remember people getting upset about the other woman who accused Kavanaugh, who then it turned out was um, was maybe not credible. None of the people who are upset about the Tara Reid story has said anything about that, and it's really pathetic, honestly. Mm-hmm. And. Um, it's just, you know, like, just own it. I, I mean, I respected people who were like, yeah, it's, I, I don't not believe her. I'm not saying she's a liar. But even if it's true, we have a guy running against who he's running against who has also facing sexual assault um, allegations. And that was at, the honest response. Yeah. And the honest response, you know, from I think a lot of us, including myself, is uh, we have fascism. He did these things and and very uncomfortable with it. Uh, I do not like Biden, as we all know. Yeah. But the alternative is Mayor Harmon's child is in Portland where people are being rounded up in protests and the entire coast is on fire yeah. because it caused by a brush fire or whatever it is that Trump said, not even a brush fire, leaves. So, yeah, matchsticks. Um, matchsticks, that's right. Just yeah. spontaneous. Ladies, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining today. Um, Mayor, good luck. I hope that, that you stay safe. Um it's, it's a mess out there. And, and Katie, be well. well. We'll see you soon, I'm sure. All right. Thank you. Uh, thank you to everybody who joined in the chat. Uh, thanks for joining us today um, by liking and subscribing. We have RY for the Super Chat donation. Thank you so much. And Bob the Mod and Billy the Bricks. Thank you for keeping the chat room honest. Um, oh, look at that. I'm just reading the updates. Everyone in the chat room for getting 200 likes to the show. Thank you. Because it's these live shows. Like, we, you know, I'm not watching. I can't see what's happening. So Dorsey's telling me about the chats that are happening. So thank you for, for making this all work. I'm still figuring out how the analytics works. But seriously, this is what's going to drive the show up. Uh, Katie knows it too well. I can see her face. She's like, yes, you got to do the likes. You got to smash yeah. the likes. You got to get in the yeah. chats. I don't understand it. I'm, I'm like a podcast person. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> when I was on TYT, we didn't have this. And that was only, you know, two years ago. Yeah. And so, you know, it's it's important. It's very important because we are not TYT, but hopefully someday we will be all be as large as TYT yeah. and we'll dominate this space. Um, thank you to everybody. We will see you next week on Tuesday, 3 p.m. Eastern to 4 p.m. Uh, right here on the Nomi Key Show. And if you're not already, make sure to join us on patreon.com slash the Nomi Key Show. That's where you're going to get special content. All right. Take care.